Today, it is all about the action. Yes, the action is what it is all about. Emphasis on action. Why are action movies exploding? Why do we love really nuanced action choreography? Why do we love just Keanu Reeves roaring back to life, getting like a six stage of his career with, with, with John Wick? Why are the directors of all of these kick-ass movies the premier directors in Hollywood now? And why aren't our comic books kicking even more ass? What happened to the action? Why was it such a priority for Marvel Comics back when I was a kid? And and, and when was the dreaded period where the, the powers that be really rolled it back and gave us less action than ever? And it, it was not a good thing. And then there was a reawakening and action returned to comics. And right now, it's happening again. There's being a course correction uh, in, in regards to the, the emphasis on action that, that that Top Gun has, that John Wick has, that Bullet Train is going to have, that Deadpool 2 has, that, that Extraction has. Today, it is all about action in the comic books, action in the movies, action all the time on today's Robservations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Robservations. I'm your host, Rob Liefeld, this is my show where I talk about my passion and my consumption of all things pop culture and comic books that started at my uh, very young age. Seven years old is really where I, I, I can absolutely nail it. Uh, s- stuff was coming in, in my and out of my life in regards to comic books as early as five and six, but seven was when I locked in and my skateboard and my bicycle got a whole lot more, uh, you know, tread on their wheels and on their tires as I traveled Orange County looking for comic books. And again, comic books, you know, I, I, the great thing about talking about where, how far comic books have gotten, have, have, have brought us and, 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 and how I've watched it. This is a phenomenon in that most people that I knew who were reading comics in 1975, which I, you guys, I understand how that sounds like little little house in the prairie i mean again this is a time without computers there are no home computers there are no d there's no vcrs you're not you're not getting to watch something again after you see it via a vhs cassette tape you're not recording anything that you're watching on television you have to adjust the rabbit ears on your television set and you know the cool thing is during that period during this 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 uh very very long ago period there was a lot of genre stuff there was Star Trek. The original Star Trek was on every weekend. There was, again, Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic One. This is the time, right around this time, 1976, that they make the Linda Carter Wonder Woman TV movie and then spin it off into its own dedicated series. CBS would do Spider-Man in live action. It would do Doctor Strange. It would find its you know eventual huge comic book hit that was on Friday nights with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. And you know, I mean, you know, I've I've done a lot of uh, shows in the last couple of years, and, and and more and more international shows. And Lou Ferrigno is generally always traveling with us, so it's always fun to see to see Lou out there, you know, uh, uh, still garnering attention and affection for his portrayal of Hulk. Which I mean, you guys, we are we are getting <laughs> we're getting you know closer to the fifty year end of that 
than 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 we are anything else. I mean, the the Hulk is is uh, that TV show was appointment television got huge ratings for CBS for a number of seasons. But this journey that I take you guys on, you know, the stuff was out there, but the comic books themselves they were seen as kid material. They were not seen as literature. And it, it's so weird because so many of the authors that were bringing you the work at this time, and chief among them is Chris Claremont, was, I mean, this was really great literature. It was really great dramatic fiction, uh, science fiction. So many, again, of the auteurs, the guys that have um, shaped where comics are today. I have mentioned the names Jim Starlin. You know Jim from Thanos. You're going to know him again from his portrayal of Adam Warlock. He did not create Warlock, but he truly refined him and gave him uh, kind of the purpose and the direction that, that that we now see today. But, but Warlock, Warlock's original origin is absolutely tied into uh, some of the events that you're going to see depicted in the Guardians of the Galaxy, the, 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 the third movie. So, so Howard Shake and Jim Starlin, I see these guys, there's, there's conventions, they're going on these, this last couple weeks, there's conventions all the time, just all the time, every week now, there's a convention, or a, a, either a uh, major minor, or just a major uh, show that is being, that is being thrown somewhere in Texas, Florida, Virginia, I mean, New York, Boston, conventions all the time, and they are featuring some of the biggest players of my youth. And I think that's because people are really, you know, again, looking more to their youth than anything before. Case in point, I come uh, on the air with you today sharing this as Disney has dropped their trailer for Andor, which is the continuation of so many of the characters that we saw in Rogue one, I loved Rogue One. I, 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 it's weird when I come across people that they're like, and I, and I have recently, and I did at San Diego. I, I think Rogue One's the worst. It's the worst one. I'm like, what? I, the fact that when they announced Rogue One, you want to go all the way back to 1975. You want to go all the way back to my youth and 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 Star Wars and that one line, and you could say, well, it's kind of a throwaway line, and and now they've built this empire on it. Uh, it, it is you know, several spies died getting us this information. And whether it was Mon Mothma herself who said that, or someone you know of of authority in the in, in Star Wars, when they announced that Rogue One was going to show us the adventure of those actual spies and how they obtained the 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 the, the schematics of the Death Star, which would give the rebels you know their one shot at taking them down, taking down the Death Star, I I was like, this is brilliant. This one throwaway line, this is great. So. I watched the the trailer for Andor. It looks amazing. It 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 looks maybe one of the most uh, uh, kind of expensive shows that they've done with Star Wars. It, it, it looks like it's the direction is impeccable. I, I was really blown away by a lot of the the different the different shots and uh, and just the overall feel of, of of those reels that they that they shared with us. So you know you, you sit there and you go the stuff. That, that, that I grew up on is still, is still, you know, growing new branches and, and, and sprouting new leaves. I mean, it is, it is, we are, are still, you know, uh, taking from that garden. And, and so I see at these conventions, Jim Starlin and Howard Chaikin, and, and of course Howard has a huge uh, foothold into Star Wars, given that he was the artist handpicked by George Lucas to draw from the selection of artists that they were giving him handpicked 
and I have a dedicated, dedicated podcast, several with Star Wars in the title that you should check out because I love giving the secret history and some of the stuff that has fallen by the wayside, even with a society like our own now that is just intent on constantly, you know, mining everything Star Wars. The, the, the fact that George was a comic book fan himself and he looked and he said, I like what this guy's doing with his sci-fi stuff with, with Cody Starbuck, which was the name of a comic strip that Howard Chick was, Chaykin was doing, and he put him, boom, into the Star Wars universe and, Star, and, and Howard did the original Star Wars adaptation. I see Howard's pictures at these conventions and I am just, uh, uh, and, and Howard is, not, is, is a fairly gruff guy and everyone who has ever worked with him editorially, one of his assistants, uh, whether it was assisting his work in New York or when he moved out here to LA, I had several friends who were um, kind of apprenticing under him and doing assisting work with him. Howard can be a very gruff guy. He's very bold. He speaks his mind. I like it. It's inspiring. It's it's. Uh, I, I'd like to think it, it, it's influenced a little of my style of how that I share as well. But Howard, um, I tabled with Howard at a Texas convention back in 2015. He was very generous, very kind, even though I don't think he was a huge, uh, you know, fan of my work, of my era, of anyone in my era. I think, again, those 70s guys, they rocked and rolled. They, 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 they knew what they were doing. They they knew that they were um, shifting and expanding the style of comic books that were that had been done with Jack Kirby and John B. Simon. They were taking it in their own new way. It was kind of the '70s revolution. It was a little bit of the the hippie revolution, um, and 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 they did. They impacted a, tr- a tremendous amount. They impacted my entire peer group. So anytime one peer group rolls over another, whether it's and I don't mean rolls over as in you know hurts them. I mean like the calendar rolls over and a decade rolls past us. And 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 it's just like with quarterbacks and point guards and pitching, you know, that 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 a new generation comes in and the old one reevaluates. And I mean, you know, from the guys on the TNT desk doing basketball to 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 the announcers in the booth on football, often they talk about the differences between the the, the generations and maybe you know, the respect and the different skill sets and the different approaches and how the game has changed. And so I look at guys like Howard Chaykin, I look at Jim Starlin, who represent a different age. And I see and I I, I just, I, I, I'm so excited that they're still out there meeting fans, meeting fans who grew up on their work. And I mean, Howard's general, a guy like Howard and a guy like Jim Starlin, they probably were at their, you know, their, their, their huge peak prime with the audience was in the late 70s, early 80s. Jim would again take another swing with a, a entirely different career as he drew less and wrote more as he became a writer on the Batman book, as he became a writer on in uh, the Infinity, you know, Gauntlet, the Infinity War. And, 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 and he really, you know, took on a whole new role as just a writer. And, and so, so, but his, when I speak of Jim Starlin's artistic peak, which, which I believe, you know, is somewhere between the end of Adam Warlock, the beginning of his Dreadstar work, that is certainly, again, 1979, early 80s, Howard Chaykin from Star Wars to American Flag takes us to the 80s. Again, I'm getting back to my childhood and, and, and grabbing these comics and they just weren't as respected as they should have been. And I knew when I was reading them that I was like into the secret sauce. And some of you guys know, some of you guys know now how uh, how you have uh, experienced comic books that you thought were better than any novel or any movie that you've ever seen or any, any TV show. And, you know, I just, I really believe that that we 
for so long and, and, and very much continue to be because let's not kid ourselves. Most people still aren't reading comics. There's just more people and more people is good. More people is better than less people because as an artist, as a creator, you want your stuff to be expanded to, to, uh, to reach the highest, the, you know, audience and the most eyeballs that you possibly can. You know, in the pandemic, I started a, a series that came out from G.I. Joe. And as I told you, I could not believe that when I looked at the sales figures at IDW that the main G.I. Joe book was selling 3,000 copies. Yes, you are not mishearing me. It was selling 3,000 copies. And again, you want to talk about my childhood. You want to talk about my, my sandbox. This is, this, I mean, this is, this is where I live and breathe. And, and, and the G.I. Joe characters were so precious to me. And again, I'm not the Ronald Reagan you know, GI Joe, real American hero generation. I would dovetail into that as I exited kind of that entire era in regards to growing out of playing and, and collecting toys. But, uh, and, and I said, and I'll, I'll share with you my big toy, you know, my, my, my big divorce from toys. I don't think I've ever shared this before. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll do it here in just a second. The, the GI Joe, that I grew up with, as I've, as I've covered with you guys, was more of the adventure series. That he had, he was born as a you know war toy, a military toy, and then with Vietnam being so uh, controversial, Hasbro made the right choice to move away from a military influence because you know as as people as 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 our military uh, you know are, are returning home from this terrible conflict in Vietnam. And having tomatoes thrown at them and being spit on and being disrespected and it creating this huge schism in society. And again, this is right when I'm watching TV as a kid. So I'm aware of it. You know, the Nixon era, Vietnam era, that's all that, that that's on the TVs that were on in my house. That's what Patty and Paul Liefeld were watching and, and, and as they prepared dinner or as they prepared to get off to work in the morning. And uh, and so Hasbro was smart to pivot and G.I. Joe became an adventure character. He became an adventure guy. And, and, and so he encountered, you know, different sci-fi elements and, and he encountered aliens and, uh, and, and, and then he teamed up with a public domain character called the bullet man and bullet man was in these ads feature for the toys that they would buy in Marvel comics. And they were, they would be illustrated by John Romita senior who the, 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 you know, acclaimed Spider-Man artist, the guy that was, you know, did, did years and years worth of Spider-Man became, you know, synonymous with Spider-Man and now is the art director. So when stuff like one page ads that Hasbro wants to reflect comic books, just so that you would see these toys in a Marvel comic kind of depiction and want to go buy them. And it worked, it worked on me and get the Eagle eye, uh, GI Joe, which had a telescope in the back of his eye or the Kung Fu grip. And that's on, I have it right behind me. It's on my shelf. It's on the box. It says Kung Fu grip. The Adventure Time G.I. Joe was what I was totally digging. And he, uh, and again, I'll get back to Bullet Man. And, and uh, so, so my G.I. Joe was a 12-inch figure, not a 6-inch figure. And it came with all manner of different friends. There was, a, there was an Atomic Man, which was a blatant, you know, uh, imitation of the $6 million man who had become very popular. He had different bionic, powered by nuclear cells. And he would, he would um, uh, team up with G.I. Joe, uh, the, ori the, the original uh, G.I. Joe, and, and, and uh, on, on his different adventures, battling the aliens, teaming with Bullet Man. Well, then you get to the real American hero stuff, and that launches, that comic book, I certainly bought it 
I know where I bought it. I bought it at the land of Oz and Oz in Fountain Valley, exactly a store I've told you guys often. That's that. It was a double-sized issue, penciled by the late, great Herb Trimpey, um, inked by Bob McCloud. They made a spectacular team. G.I. Joe number two uh, was the first book that I remember walking into different comic book stores, and it was already up on the wall, and it already carried it a uh, 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 like heavy cover price, like double or triple cover price. It was five. It was ten dollars, you know, instead of covers, instead of the actual cover price. And it was the first time that I was like, "What's going on?" They're like, "Well, you know, demand issue one was such a big deal, and none of us ordered issue two correctly. This is these retailers were all just completely, you know, out on." on front street with this information and, 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 and realizing that they didn't understand how big GI Joe would blow up as. And again, because GI Joe had had uh, commercials for the comic on the cartoon, that was one of the ways that they struck the deal. And Marvel animation was actually doing the animation for for GI Joe, you know, that issue two had way more uh, demand than there was supply. So GI Joe two was the early on uh, hands down favorite, for the comic book that everybody wanted and very few people had. And so it drove, it was my, it was my really early kind of, you know, encounter with, 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 with supply and demand and, and, and the idea that these books could disappear on the same weekend they came out at the direct market store, because 1982, 1983, I am going to the comic store now. And, and I have discovered the comic store. I am plotting my time on weekends. So I got to, you know, experience the sensation of the G.I. Joe reboot through Marvel Comics, through just not only the excitement that the characters created, but also through suddenly the supply and demand and the price. And again, the conventions, the local conventions that summer, the ones that came to the Disneyland Hotel that I've talked to you guys about the trip that summer to San Diego Comic-Con, the G.I. Joe books were already back wall books or, you know, that they, they were they were priced higher and this obviously would grab the attention of everybody and, and propel G.I. Joe to one of the best-selling series that Marvel had, rivaling the X-Men at the time. So you can imagine when I look and I go, wait, G.I. Joe is selling what? And so I rolled up my sleeves and I did a five-issue Snake Eyes series. And we actually did kind of a sixth issue, which showed the breakdown between issue five, where I went and I collected some of today's brightest and best talents, along with the great talents of the time that were working in comics as many as I possibly could. And they all combined together with me to make the final issue of Snake Eyes Dead Game. And Snake Eyes Dead Game was a bit more on the mystical ninja side because it was, you know, really focused on Snake Eyes. But I very much wanted to ramp up something that I loved from my childhood and get it back and get it up and seen you know, by greater eyeballs. And trust me, when we, I think we did about 80,000, which is phenomenal to go from 3,000 of the current G.I. Joe to 80,000 was the, you know, the result of rolling up our sleeves and trying to put a greater limelight, a greater spotlight, a greater, you know, attention on the G.I. Joe franchise, a franchise I loved so much as a kid. And I wanted to see it, you know, grow and continue to get, you know, more attention. Again, stuff that grew from my childhood, just as you're seeing an Andor, you know, trailer that really goes straight from A New Hope to 1977 Star Wars. Again, the stuff from our childhood. I see Larry Hama out there. I see this brilliant man who created all of these great G.I. Joe characters. And without him, I don't get to do 
you know, Snake Eyes Dead game and hopefully expand it. And again, I'm out on the convention circuit again and people are so, they're sharing with me that Snake Eyes is their return to the, uh, to, to, to the franchise that, 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 you know, they hadn't bought GI Joe in a long time, but they re-entered with snake eyes. And again, IDW was really quick. They put together a magnificent, it's beautiful, the trade paperback it's out there. So, so we, we went from, we, we got our, our first issue, our, we extended to a, a six issue, which was kind of a behind the scenes production, uh, look at the, the entire thing. But the bottom line is, my love, my nostalgia for a project drove me to go, hey, I need to do this. Hey, I need to, you know, help out and, and, and increase, you know, the, the sales and relevance of, of a property that I adore and that I love. And that I, if, if I had, you know, a little juice in me and I did, that I would put it towards this and, 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 and try and kickstart and, and get, get, you know, Snake Eyes and G.I. Joe relevance. The funny thing about Bullet Man and those adventure heroes is that people would write into me. And on social media at the time, people would say, I can't believe you're bringing in all these, you know, lame designs and characters of your own. Like, like you, you, the, the, these characters you're adding to the lore are like bad DC ripoffs. And a couple of them were completely silenced when I was able to show them that Bullet Man and the Atomic Man and the alien character uh, were, were, were like part of the G.I. Joe lore that just came out before them. Again, this also speaks to recency bias. These guys did not do one single lick of research. They didn't go, hmm, maybe there's this. I mean, you guys, so often curiosity drives so much of, of you know, the information that I receive because I'm like, hi, I wonder if this connects to this. And, and today with the most powerful tool that we have, with this internet, it's so easy. But again, you know, I, I'm not sharing with you because it hurt my feelings. I'm sharing with you because it was totally entertaining. Many of the times, you guys, I am just so entertained. If you haven't picked up already, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident. And I am always entertained by the people who want to take a swing at me uh, with, with just giant, you know, styrofoam bats of misinformation. Because that's really the effect of it. It's a styrofoam bat. You know, if you've been hit by a styrofoam bat, it doesn't hurt you, but you acknowledge, oh, there was a swing. So, so, so again, you know, like, I can't believe this bullet man character. Well, you just don't know that he was part of GI Joe lore. And as a result, then when they realize, oh man, they just, maybe then they just downgrade me to, well, he has really bad taste that he focused on this. Cause again, throughout the length of that series, I was told how misguided and how I didn't, you know, uh, uh, use everybody else's favorite characters and trust me when you go to see these all these brilliant reissues of the gi joe action figures that hasbro's been doing i mean there are there are tons of characters i tried to you know work in some of my favorites as much as i could with scarlet and roadblock but you know not everybody's favorite can make it into the you know into the lore i wanted to pack it more in in the, into the last issue but it just it just didn't seem right but again nostalgia you know the 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 memory of youth the adoration uh, that you have for an older property, you know, it all can continue to produce fantastic inspiration. And and again, these 1975, 1976, 1977, this was uh, a time that so many of today's popular uh, items, franchises, that that popular word, intellectual property, IP, 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 that they were born, they were born when I was seven and eight and nine and, and they continue to resonate so powerfully. The story that I was going to tell you about my, 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 my toys. Okay. You know, by the time, 
uh, Empire Strikes Back comes out, I am now going into junior high. I am, it's the summer that, uh, that I am turning, I'm still 12 the entire summer of 1980, but again, because my, my, my birthday turns, I become what age I am with like, you know, two months left in every year. So, so I will be 13 in October of 1980, and I'm about to go into seventh grade, and I decide I need to sell all my Star Wars stuff. This is first generation, for, and I can hear your, ow, oh. okay, but come on, this, this is 1980. I have like 10 stormtroopers. I have four Tusken Raiders. I, you know, have my Boba Fett that, that came in the mail. I have Han Solo. I have multiple Han Solos, multiple Luke Skywalkers, multiple Darth Vaders, Princess Leas, Jawas. Um, I've, I've got about half of what had been coming out from the Empire Strikes Back. I have a Millennium. No, I don't think I have the Millennium Falcon. I have the Land Speeder. I have the Dewback. I have um, several TIE Fighters, several X-Wing Fighters. So I've, I've got some good vehicles, some good, um, extra, you know, ex- extra, you know, of, of the play sets. I've got the Cantina play set. I've got, you know, different play sets. And uh, I, I have the Darth, I have the Death Star play set. You guys, the Death Star, which you, you know, came in a giant box. Well, I tell my mom, I'm going to sell this stuff. I'm going to have a garage sale just based on my, you know, Star Wars toys. And it's going to be right outside the front window. So everybody can see. So my parents don't have to worry. I'm right on the curb. Um, really, you know, the, the, the neighborhood that I was living in was, was really nice in 1980. And I set up on a card table individually, set out all my different toys. And, you know, I gotta be honest, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. One car drove by, stopped, rolled down their window, said, what are you looking for? And I said, I have all the Star Wars figures. (laughs) And they were like, yeah, that's not what I'm asking. What are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm, I'm. I'm thinking about like, you know, uh, $4 a figure. And, and, and the guy goes, kind of just nodded and, and drove on. Well, in a, one of those kind of puffer jackets, my, my wife calls them puffer jackets, kind of like a ski jacket. Cause again, this is as, as August is turning to fall. So it's not terribly cold. You know, this is like, you know, maybe, maybe early September, but, but it's, it's this guy in a ski jacket in a beard, it, it, the, the, the blonde haired, you know, bearded looking guy from any 1970s Marlboro, you know, cigarette billboard, but except not that tall, not that handsome, but that style. He comes walking straight down the street that I'm facing on the opposite block that I'm facing where a couple of my friends live. And he walks down and he looks at everything and he goes, you take $200 for all of it. And you guys, I heard trumpets. I saw fireworks. I heard rainbows. And I'm like, what? He goes, you take 200 for all of it? Yes. Yes. It was, it was a foregone conclusion. $200 for, again, what amounted to probably 26 action figures or more between 26, 30 and about six or seven vehicles and two. And you know, for me, I'm like, I have $200. Whoa. Now each and every single one of those action figures is probably $200 as you, as you are aware. But 1980, Robbie Liefeld took that quote. He said, I'll be right back. He walked back up the street to where he lived and came back with cash and gave me $200 cash. My dad had come out by that time. He, uh, he, you know, he had, uh, counted it out in front of me. He brought his car, put everything in the car, had some boxes. 
you know, my, my, my card table was empty. My sale was complete. My big giant Star Wars sale took all of 15 minutes in 1980 and off went Ben and Luke. And I felt like that was my rite of passage because come on, man, I, I was starting to really like girls. I was, still, I, I was taken uh, by, 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 by my, by, by puberty, by, by the, the nature of, I like pretty girls and I can't be playing with toys, but you're not going to take my comics because I can conceal my comics in my closet, in my peachy folder, in my books. But yeah, playing with action figures uh, at 13 years old, I finally let them go. And now at 54, I am driving all over, uh, the you know, Orange County and all the different, you know, retro toy stores paying way above market price to get all of these uh, back in my collection. So yes, the irony is not lost on me. That is uh, just a funny story. So that is why I was unable to really carry into the Real American Hero, the G.I. Joe action figures, because while I bought the comic books, I had kind of really sworn off. I mean, I had all manner. I had the Shogun Warriors. I had the Godzilla. I had Planet of the Apes. I had all those Mego dolls, but they had all long since kind of cycled out. The Star Wars figures were my absolute favorite toys. And, but to say goodbye to them was just plain, cold, hard commerce. It was commerce. I was making a sale. I was, I was financing my 1980, 13 year old lifestyle. And maybe some of you guys have similar stories. I would absolutely love to hear them. They resonate so much. One of the things we're going to talk about today as we pump the brakes on our Marvel DC uh, uh, series for, for at least one, one episode to, to mix it up a little is something that I see very much happening in the comics industry right now is really an everything old is new again approach. And, and I see that Marvel Comics in the publishing end is putting out like a new Mr. Fix-It. And for those of you who don't know, Mr. Fix-It is the Gray Hulk. Uh, Many of you will will know that Hulk started out gray in the comic books, and there's all manner of lore about the the color process and the plates and the printing that, 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 that he was never supposed to be gray. He was always supposed to be green, or eventually he turned green. But for the first few episodes, the first few appearances, he was gray. And then in the 1980s, in my personal favorite Todd McFarlane comic book of all space and time, this is a period where shortly after John Byrne had left the book and then Peter David, it, 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 it migrated towards Peter David taking it over. The, uh, the, the uh, Hulk transferred, he became, he became gray. And uh, this was met with a lot of enthusiasm. It was cool. It was a cool change of pace. And Peter David was uh, was ecstatic. Uh, and, 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 and at first, this Grey Hulk seemed even more savage. And, and, and getting back to probably the most famous iteration in the modern day of the Grey Hulk is the Todd McFarlane Incredible Hulk. I think it's 340. Is it 340? Let me check on that. And it is the iconic, for my money, the most iconic thing Todd has ever drawn is this epic, uh, incredible Hulk 340 cover where Hulk's uh, in the reflection of Wolverine's claws. It is, it is so raw. It is so powerful. You can just, it it is, I'm going to tell you, Todd's Hulk, that body of work does not get the run that it deserves. It is so amazing. I love it so much. Uh, when When it was coming out, I saw very much, you know, uh, a, a transition from what he was doing on Infinity Inc. over at 
DC Comics, which where he cut his teeth for a while. He even came over. He did early on at, at Marvel. He did you know Spitfire and the Troubleshooters. Uh, he was bouncing around doing some fill-ins, but they locked him in. He got Hulk. Hulk seemed like the right book for him. He started penciling himself after after getting I think much better inkers than he was getting over at DC Comics. But the Hulk Wolverine battle in in issue three forty of Hulk is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Todd McFarlane job. It's it's just wall-to-wall action and 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 good on uh, Peter David for just letting the action sequences play out. And but the Hulk would evolve from this this epic, you know, issue three forty, and the complications between Banner and the Hulk and and the psyche would evolve. And long story short, he would take on an, a, a a persona as a kind of a mob enforcer called Mister Fix It, and this is the Gray Hulk. Well, Marvel is returning to a Gray Hulk miniseries, limited series with Peter David back at the helm. In the same way that they have returned to Jim Starlin writing, uh, and Ron, I'm sorry, Ron Mars, uh, Ron Lim, their version of Silver Surfer, which was very popular in the early 90s. Uh, we just got the announcement that Chris Claremont is coming back with Steve, uh, Salvador LaRocca to do Extreme X-Men. What do these all have in common? They all have in common that they are byproducts of the late or early 90s or the early 2000s, and here's the deal. Marvel is having tremendous success with these. They are really meeting with great success in the way that these are being received by you, the consumer, you, the fan. Now, DC Comics is also uh, following suit with an anniversary of the death of Superman, which is probably the apex of their publishing movement over the last 30 years, and bringing back Dan Jurgens. And so, again, everything old is new again, but we are also... Uh, experiencing, and I know from the publishing level, they really are um, very excited with how these are being received by you guys and and, and girls and, and everyone who is in the community picking these books up. You are all, uh, especially if you were a kid during that age, you are buying the, 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 the return to form for the Silver Surfer that you like. You're buying the return to form for the Hulk that you like. You're going to jump on the anniversary of the death of Superman in the same way that Marvel went back. I did an X-Force one shot. We celebrated Deadpool's birthday. You guys like these 30 year anniversaries. It's, 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 you know, you know, been shown, been proven. Extreme X-Men was a cool launch. It was a, a, a kind of a return to form for Chris Claremont on the X-Men. It was more action oriented than what was going on at the time, which was a little more thinky. Uh, and again, you know, the early, Quemus era, which is the, the, the Bill Jemis with, with Joe Quesada and the entire industry referred to them as Quemus. They had really made a very concerted effort. It was not a secret. It was known throughout the community. They wanted this, uh, they called it decompressed storyline. If you had a storyline that could be told in two or three issues, they wanted it told in six. They wanted to sl- slow it down, slice it, you know, into, into greater pieces and then get major trade paperbacks out of it. They, they, they wanted to get a longer version of what would you know, normally be a more abbreviated storyline. And they had gotten into business with one of the most, I would say, constipated storytellers of that period who loved to blather and talk and, and, and thought that, that, that the David Mamet approach to comics was the way that we all wanted to be fed. And it went against the Marvel method, the Marvel methodology that I've, I've shared with you. There is an episode called The Secret 
of the Observations podcast, I believe, if I'm not correct, uh, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken, that the, the, the episode The Secret really tells you how Jim Shooter uh, perfected the Stanley formula before him. Now, Stan and Jim worked hand in hand. Stan was fond of Jim. Jim made the money, the, the, the company Marvel. He made them a lot of money. He was very successful. Um, we've done several several podcasts on Jim Shooter. It is, it is, you know, my opinion that he is the greatest editor-in-chief of all of Marvel's history uh, outside of the initial, of the modern history, outside of the initial Stan Lee, you know, Silver Age approach from the Bronze Age to now, nobody's done it better than Jim. And and listen to those podcasts. See why it's the crossovers, it's the merchandising, it's the licensing, it's the 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 what he did with talent, letting them grow, letting them you know expand beyond what 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 I think most of the editor in chiefs of that time would 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 allow them to do. You don't get to Frank Miller, you don't get to John Byrne, you don't get to Walt Simonson in the way that you do without Jim Shooter giving them the green light. Again, the crossovers, all of it. I go into much greater detail. Check out all of my Jim Shooter related podcasts. I think if you Google them, they'll come up in the search engine, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, whatever platform that you listen to this show on. Jim Shooter was truly a visionary, and there are people who did not like working with him, and they have contributed to trying to drag his reputation. I did not work with him. I almost did, but I did not want to ruin my adoration that I had from him as a kid, as a kid. And that's where this, these relationships are formed. George Lucas is more concerned with his relationship with Rob Liefeld, the 12 year old, than he was with the executives that were maybe, you know, trying to derail his vision. Jim Shooter was completely in lockstep with what he thought the retailers wanted and what the fans wanted. And I was a fan during that period, the entirety of that period. He is removed as editor-in-chief my first year at Marvel because, again, I have been doing this that long. But this Quemish, uh two-headed, you know, publishing editor-in-chief entity, and they did, you know, they, they did press releases together, they did press conferences together, they kind of let their, they went to this more, um, constipated storytelling. They called it decompressed. And it was truly like a slowing down, a grinding of the wheels. All of the action, all of the excitement from most of the Marvel comics in that period, in the early 2000s, that I saw of really ground to a halt. Now, what did assist in this is some of the greatest action storytellers of the age all took three years off. I've covered this. I took a sabbatical, a sabbatical. Yes, I identify myself as a very successful, um, very accomplished action storyteller. That's kind of what I do. I, 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 that's what the fans tell me that I do well. It's what retailers tell me that I do well. It's kind of the space that I work in the best. So along with me, you've got Jim Lee. You've got Todd McFarlane. You've got Mark Silvestri. You've got Will Sportaccio. You've got Dale Keown. You've got uh, Mark Tashiera. All of these guys. You've got J. Scott Campbell. You've got Joe Madiera. They call him Joe Mad. Everybody took a break. Every, everybody took a break simultaneously. I've spoken to this at great length. If you go to the 90s podcast, I refer to it. And again, we're going to come back to this. It's, it's almost becoming more mentioned on the show than a Todd McFarlane uh, imitation is the scientist, the creator of, of, of the replicants in, in Blade Runner who tells Roy that the, the light that burns, you know, twice as bright burns half as long and you have burned. So very bright, Roy. Again, you know, when that flame hits its apex, it's going to come down the wick 
is going to be smaller at the end. And that is what that speaks to. And whether it's in, again, like I said, sports, politics, entertainment, you see it, you see windows, you see people book job, 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 job. And then they semi-retire. We all remember as moviegoers, the Julia Roberts, you know, era where she was, you know, it went from, you know, Steel Magnolias to, to I mean, we can go back to Mystic Pizza, Steel Magnolias, uh, Pretty Woman, uh, uh, Sleeping with the Enemy, and then Dying Young. And I mean, you just, she was, she, she even, it's why she got her Tinkerbell role in, 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 in Hook, the, the, the Steven Spielberg reboot. And then, I mean, the Pelican Brief, uh, you know, My Best Friend's Wedding, she, Notting Hill, Julia Roberts had about this, you know, six, seven years of just incredible success. You know, Sandra Bullock, the same thing. They have made their giant name. Matthew McConaughey went on a run. A lot of these guys, you know, when they're going on their run, Will Smith, you know, um, with, uh, with, with bad boys to, to, to Independence Day to Men in Black, that three pictures, those three movies set up everything else that followed for about the next eight years. And he picked very successfully. Well, you know, windows, again, I've said this, they open, they close. And, and for us, the talent, the guys who were the real action artists, and, 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 and the guys who I call, I, I say successfully, you know, we knew how to splash and that re refers to a splash page. And if you're, you know, listening to this for the first time, a full page shot in a comic book that takes up the full page is called a splash. Sometimes if there's an inset and that's cut down by like 25%, it's called a three quarter splash page. Okay. But the splash is the big shot. Most Marvel comics used to always absolutely open with a splash page. It was part of the secret part of the formula. Part of the way that Marvel felt that they operated better than anybody else. And there was a certain balance of action and soap opera that every Marvel comic was supposed to have. In the 2000s, they just completely broke it. They changed it. They slowed it down. They made sure that really long, arduous conversations were had. I mean, the letterers of this time probably never worked harder than they ever did before because of the verbose nature of um, the, the, the writer's who had been empowered by the decompressed gods, the the overseers of the constipated comic book, and 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 because I was like, wait, why are the why is there so much word balloon? And it, somewhere between Quentin Tarantino and David Mamet, these this new age of writers felt like they wanted to you know write. Th th we wanted to hear their clever dialogue and their witty you know. Their, 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 their witty banter. And, and, uh, and, and I just wasn't that guy. I wanted more action. I wanted more excitement. And, and so when I'm talking that like the publishers right now are realizing, wow, Mr. Fixit's got big numbers. This return to Ron Lim's Silver Surfer's got big numbers. Wow. This extreme X-Men got a great response. And there's stuff that I'm not bringing up that it, that's in there that, 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 that I'm skipping over, but there's others that fit into this model. This approach is having a lot of success. And again, I feel like we're coming out of another era where there was not as much emphasis put on action and movement. Action and movement it is with a great amount of pride and some, you know, trepidation because I know you guys are going to, you know, go, what what the heck? I have seen Top Gun in a theater, Maverick, eight times now. It, it, it seems excessive, but it goes, uh, it goes, I saw it at CinemaCon, the world premiere, uh, then, 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 uh, had, had I gone to the, 
premiere in San Diego, which I had tickets for. I was cleared, but I was totally booked and I had to leave and go to Texas and I just couldn't fit it in. Um, and, 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 and I'm blessed that my wife doesn't completely hold it against me that we weren't out, out there partying with the entire cast of Top Gun Maverick. But, you know, saw it at the CinemaCon premiere where they showed it to all the theater, go- theater owners and it made its first epic, you know, revelation. Then I saw it at an IMAX screening a week before it came out with my son, with my oldest son, Luke, uh, and, and, and alongside Tim Miller of Deadpool fame, um, who, who sat next to me, and, and, and we, we, we enjoyed watching this movie in, in IMAX. And uh, then, then Memorial Day weekend, I saw it with Robert Kirkman. Uh, right after that, I went on a run with my wife, saw it a couple times with her. We, we saw it in 4DX, which is an experience I've never had before, where the theater... <laughs> where the chairs lunge forward, go to the side of you guys. I've never done the 40X. I've never, I guess it's been out, what, almost a decade, eight years. But um, I had to turn off the water application because it will absolutely like spray water on you anywhere time, anywhere they're near the water. And obviously in Top Gun, they're near the water a lot, whether it's Tom Cruise sailing with Jennifer Connelly on the boat or whether it was them on the aircraft carrying the splashes. I was like, this is not going to splash me anymore. So I turned off the 40X water application but man that thing is a roller coaster ride it is absolutely lunging you forwards backwards side right left um i literally giggled and laughed like for two hours because it is you are you are riding a roller coaster and watching a movie at the same time and i would suggest not as we we we, we were very careful my wife and i not to you know fill up um some people next to us were having a hard time um holding holding everything down it was uh it, be prepared. Those 40X, they're not playing around. That is some serious roller coaster ride stuff. So I think that was the sixth time. And then recently my, my uh, or the sixth, the, the seventh time was the 40X. And then uh, I took my, my, my daughter who had not seen it all summer long. And I, I was like, you have to see this. So we went and saw it together. But I have been really impressed with how the director, Joseph Kaczynski, moves his camera and creates motion and how there are four different times in that movie that people enter through enter a scene and they are shot from behind and from the waist up as they enter through a doorway, enter through a doorway, whether it's the bar, the hard deck, whether it's the, uh, the you know, training center in the Mojave Desert, whether it's Tom Cruise's hangar, Joseph Kaczynski likes to walk you through. Now the reverse is Miles Teller walking into the hard deck, but there's also Tom Cruise entering the hard deck looking for Penny at the end. And it's a way he creates motion and the camera follows him. The camera moving and the figure is moving. And, and, uh, and again, you get maximum movement when your object is moving right to left and your camera may be moving right to left or tracking with you. I am all about movement. I love movement. It is not lost on me, again, as I have said here, that some of the biggest directors right now in Hollywood are the action-oriented guys. You've got, you know, David Leach. You've got, I mean, you know, the John Wick directors really, you know, have blown up. And then you've got, You've got Sam Hargrave who did Extraction and Extraction 2. And of course he is signed to direct the upcoming Prophet movie, which I could not be more excited by because he is a master, you know, action movement storyteller. And look, what do all these guys have in common? They've got the four John Wicks, four, John Wick 4 is coming out. They've got, you know, when, when it comes to David Leach, he's got Atomic Blonde, he's got Deadpool 2, he's got Hobbs and Shaw, he's got Bullet Train coming out. Um... Sam Hargrave has the two extractions. I went, I saw the Gray Man. I loved it. I, I, I highly recommend. I saw Gray Man in the theater. I thought it was fantastic. It was the full scope uh, that I, that I wanted. 
in, for a summer blockbuster after Top Gun. It is my favorite movie of the summer. Again, I saw it on a theater. I saw it uh, in, 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 in the biggest screen possible. And whether it's the Prague, like 20-minute action sequence, the plane falling apart, uh, the finale, you know, at the castle, I just, I thought all of the action was fantastic. The movement was fantastic. I was never bored. I was constantly entertained. Emphasis, action, 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 action. And it did not ever fail to hold my entire attention. And and so again, I'm looking forward to seeing Bullet Train. But these are these are just um, some of the names who are embracing action and why it's getting made again and again and again is because we, as the audience, are showing up to see it. These are the movies that are getting our dollar. Top Gun is 100% an action movie. It is just made with giant, you know, military, you know, badass jets. And, 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 and the upside down, the right to the left, the zig, the zag. I mean, all of the, the motion in, in, these, in, 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 in the aerial combat, which is just unlike anything we've ever seen. We've all known that the, the pilots had, you know, they did their hair and their makeup in the cockpit and they were basically their own directors. They put the cameras in different positions. They'd land. The, Joseph Kaczynski, the director, would review the footage. You know, maybe tell them to get back up again, see what they're going to go after tomorrow. I mean, this is some real... Um, just balls to the walls action filmmaking, whether it's in fighter jets or hand to hand combat a la John Wick. The action directors are the directors that are the most kind of exalted in the business now. They're the ones that are the most sought after. For a couple of projects that I have upcoming that I would love to tell you about, but they're right on the cusp, I have got a number of different directors that are from this ilk that are being submitted to me all the time. So, cinema is not unlike comic books. Emphasis on action and motion is where you're going to get the most out of your bang, out of your buck. Well, you couldn't help it in the 2000s because the premier action guys all, we all retired. Then, you know, Jim Lee signs Hush. He comes back in 2003. It creates this excitement. It's, it's, it's way more successful than anything else. Now, obviously it's Jim Lee's ability to connect with his audience via his very, um, commercial and very popular style of depicting things, but Jim is a great action artist. Just like all of the image guys, we thrive on giving you elbows, knees, kicks, punches. And what happened is in 2004, no less than C.B. Sobolski, who is now the editor-in-chief, approached me at San Diego Comic-Con as I was releasing my Youngblood Bloodsport that I had done in conjunction with Mark Miller, who was really, in my mind, the only guy who understood that action was still necessary in the comics that Marvel were producing, were producing at the time, which is why I loved his Ultimate X-Men, which is why I loved his Authority, which is why I loved his Ultimates. I had produced a Youngblood uh, series with him and had released the first issue, and C.B. Sibolsky, who was a talent manager at the time, came up to me and said, Rob, would you consider coming back and doing a project for you? And, it, and so right at this time, we are in the middle of Jim Lee's hush run, probably to the six or seven issue mark, and... What's happened is they've hired Mark Silvestri to come on X-Men and wrap up the Grant Morrison run. So you've got Jim. Now you've got Mark. What's happening is retailers are selling these comics. The fans are coming back in droves. We have all been gone for three years. X-Force 2004-2005 comes out. I remember very specifically, my editor, his name is Mike Martz, great guy. Um, we got bumped a couple times. Uh, we were supposed to come out in September. We got pulled back to August to release earlier because the in, the 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 heat on the book was so strong, and we sold out of a hundred thousand copies in two thousand four with zero variants. Okay, and we weren't you know 
the pick of the litter. We came out that month, specifically I remember, against seven new Marvel number ones. You're like, well, Lightfall, that's nothing. No, back in 2004, it was a big deal. And X-Force took flight, it launched, and and it connected. And that X-Force miniseries in, in 2006, uh, I was told several times, it, you know, overperformed. It overperformed. You know, hey, Rob, we asked you back to your best-selling title. And X-Force in and of itself had been turned off, as you know. Cable had been Soldier X. Uh, he was just now coming back in a series alongside Deadpool. Uh, the X-Force book had become kind of a comedy book. The X-Force moniker had been a kind of a parody comic uh, produced by Milligan and Allred. And if that was your thing, that was your thing. There is certainly an audience for what they were doing, but it was not the traditional Cable, Shatterstar, Domino, Deadpool stories that had, you know, become the best-selling book for Marvel for, for, for years on end, top of the charts, and, and so comes back and they're surprised because again, the powers that be were losing traction with this constipated storytelling. It was people weren't connecting with it. They weren't, it was like, this isn't what they wanted. They don't want all this talky, 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 talky bullshit. And they wanted comics that moved, but Marvel didn't move first. It was DC and it was with Jim Lee coming back to Batman. Now the, the rumor is that after Wildstorm, Jim took, he, he had five years to fulfill his contract which is why he took five years. This is just a rumor. It's not substantiated, but I've heard it from so many people. That is why Jim didn't do interiors of comics after selling Wildstorm in 97. The deal closed in 98. He finally comes and does this year-long run on Batman um, that, that is extremely well-received and, and partially because Jeff Loeb knows how to tell great, big, splashy action stories and Jim Lee knows how to illustrate them and deliver them to you in the most commercial way popular. <laughs> in the most commercial way possible. So they did that and it worked out great and it moved the needle. And so then Marvel went and got Silvestri and got him for the last four issues of X-Men and they got me and I, they got six issues and then they got four issues of Shatterstar, 10 issues total. And these books did numbers and it was like everyone remembered why people buy comics and enjoy comics and embrace comics in the way that they do. And it was this reignite again, Mark out of, out of, out of really retirement, uh, you know, myself, Jim. So your big cornerstones of the nineties movement were back. And I'm telling you right now, what's going on in publishing is you see these cornerstones, uh, whether it was extreme X-Men, which was extremely popular, but Mr. Fix it, Peter David, gray Hulk, the silver surfer by Ron Lim. Again, I keep going back to these three cause they're the ones that are fresh in my mind, but there's more, there's others. And, and I know for a fact, there's more coming your way. And it's because they've remembered, hey, people like when comics were fun, when they moved, when they kicked all sorts of ass. And just like me going back and revisiting a style of comic book with G.I. Joe that was successful because the original G.I. Joe, the, the, the real American hero, that comic moved. It had action. And I don't know what went into the, the G.I. Joe book going down so much in sales, but it was like... I can remind you why you love this. And you guys, when I see you at San Diego, in Texas, in North Carolina, in Florida, in Arizona, all the different places I've been in the last few years, you guys tell me, you guys tell me how much you enjoyed seeing the G.I. Joe stuff kick ass again. I was just following the formula that inspired me because G.I. Joe obviously had a tremendous impact on everything I do, down to character designs, down, down to weapon, down to gear, cable, all that stuff doesn't exist but for the G.I. Joe influence. 
G.I. Joe was $6 million mans in a ton of military G.I. Joe. I mean, I'm sorry, Cable is the $6 million man in a bunch of G.I. Joe military gear, okay? I mean, and Jack Kirby big vacuum cleaner guns. I mean, there's so much. I just kept throwing different stuff at that stuff. But again, I can speak to my own, you know, product of influence and how I applied it. But what's going on now is, uh, you know, the, 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 the publishing is discovering that when they go back, when they return to form, when they, when they give people, you know, iterations of the char- these characters, the fun characters, the action, the adventure that they want, they show up. And that these, you know, different, different regimes move in. And this regime in the early 2000s thought very, thought very much that they could, you know, make comics smarter. What they were really trying to tell you is these comics you liked, and I've, I've covered that Casada went into the X-Men office and said, did anything good happen to these books in the 90s? And that was told to me by all three X-Men editors who could not have felt more insulted at the time. And then they went on to completely, the, the launch of Grant Morrison was great, but it quickly derails and you get uh, uh, two years of fill-in artists and art styles that aren't, it was it was to me, after the original Frank Quietly, the worst uh, portrayal of the X-Men that I had ever seen because the X-Men was built on, you know, the brand names of the most commercial guys in the business, John Byrne, Dave Cockrum, Paul Smith, Mark Silvestri, Jim Lee, Art Adams, Barry Windsor Smith, and then some of these European artists that were brought in and sometimes were having to draw books in two weeks. That's not the X-Men. That's not what made the X-Men great. So you can say that you made it smarter, but you did not make it better. And none of those books live in like the consciousness of, of, of the fans in terms of like they don't adore those storylines in those moments because they see them as rushed, as 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 you know, misconnected. The most powerful thing of the Grant Morrison run again was Cassandra Nova, but so much of that that he that he did was completely undone in in the aftermath. So so again, you know, what works is generally always what works. You going back to Top Gun. It is a very streamlined action picture. It is a very clear three three act structure. It is focused. It's really a story about this this older pilot realizing his 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 destiny and 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 fulfilling you know his his mission. But the movie has a very basic mission. They tell you right in the middle. Here's our mission. Here's what we do: train for the mission. Attempt to pull off the mission and overcome the difficulties of the mission. And in the middle of it, and, and through all of it, kick-ass action, non-stop movement. Because that's what the audience loves. So, speaking of, of action, obviously I'm very passionate about it. I just <laughs> I just spent uh, quite a ramble really just emphasizing to you guys why I think passion uh, of action, the action that... that, that, that inspired me is in my youth the books that I talked to you about Avengers X-Men Fantastic Four Teen Titans Legion the Spider-Man books I enjoyed the Captain America books I've shared with you all these the one uni- uniting element among all of them is they never forget to kick a ton of ass and creative action is uh is really you know something that you you rise to the occasion on when I create action sequences i research them i re <laughs> say it again research them i read anime i read manga watch anime look at movies the one of the uh the the screenwriters of deadpool Rhett reese had was giving screenwriting notes and this was after they wrote the sequel to gi joe 
the one with The Rock, the, the second live-action G.I. Joe movie, which had the killer breakout kind of mountain assault uh, sequence with, with Snake Eyes, Storm Shadow. He had already written Deadpool. He had already... That, 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 that Deadpool script just lit up the industry and got both Rhett and his partner Paul hired uh, to, to do all sorts of jobs because that screenplay was so strong and so transformative, visionary. But he was giving a Twitter kind of Q&A advice back in, I'd say, 2014, 2015. And he said, look, a lot of guys who write screenplays, like, you know, cut to action. There's a fight in a hallway. And, like, leave it up to the director. He goes, we don't do that. We work it out beat by beat, which fist is thrown, the counters, the the kicks, the knees. And you've got to believe that that makes everything so much more uh, just fully realized and, and helps the director and us as fans absorb it when the writer is able to so clearly, you know, choreograph it out. And then maybe the director puts a polish on top of that. But again, he said there, there are writers who are like, ah, fight in the hallway. Well, you know, obviously, I bet if we watched the two Daredevil, big Daredevil fight in the hallways from seasons one and season two, I'm sure they're very uh, specifically you know, written out, mocked out how he takes on, you know, opponent one, opponent two, opponent three. And and look, again, the action, what is the thing that everyone was stunned by in, in Daredevil season one and two are those kick-ass, you know, hallway scenes. Well, what's that about? That's about really clever action depicting our hero overcoming the odds. The great writers who get paired with great action artists, and again, Claremont was so fortunate that he had Cockrum and Byrne and again, I, I go back to the X-Men because it's the gold standard. It is the absolute gold star- standard. Even as fill-in artists, you know, Rick Leonardi, Barry Windsor Smith, Art Adams, these guys knew how to portray great action. His Paul Smith run, the reason I, I, I speak of it so highly, and I think there's a dedicated episode on or where we mention just all, there's, there's a ton of episodes dealing with the X-Men and observations. You should check them out. They go into more depth on all of this. But Paul Smith came from animation where choreography is king. And that's why the action became so central, so important. So, yeah, action is really important to me. I'm passionate about it. It inspired me without great, fun, big movement movement in comics. I probably don't get sucked in the way I do. And, and, and the guys who do it better than the rest, you know, elevated themselves and became inspirations and heroes. And, you know, speaking again once one more time, emphasizing action, I recently did a profit re-release a Prophet remaster of a book that came out in 1994, 1993. Prophet himself debuted in 1992, 30 years ago. To celebrate that, we remastered his first issue, which I got amazing action artists. And now we're doing the same with Brigade Number 1, a Brigade remaster, which came out 30 years ago. And that has some of the same artists and some new faces, but they're all very, when I look back on those books and I see how they move, and I've read people re, people's reviews and their comments on them, and they're talking about like, it's fun to look back and see how different comic books, you know, moved. And again, nobody's favorite comic is that constipated diarrhea of the mouth, you know, uh, uh, dialogue crap. Nobody holds that shit uh, up high. The, the, because there's not giant moments in there. The moments are the breathtaking stuff. The Christopher Nolan stuff. People are still talking about. I was, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about the Mission Impossible trailer and when Tom goes off 
the cliff and and they're questioning whether that really is him of course it's him they had to bond him they had to get all that in uh, millions of dollars for the insurance company company he does all the he broke his leg jumping from one building to another on the last mission impossible again that is a byproduct of the spectacular action they're trying to bring you i mean i mentioned i mentioned david leach i mentioned uh sam hargrave i mentioned the russos obviously christopher mcquarrie christopher nolan um, there are so many. I mean, Tim Miller, the action in Deadpool number one is fantastic. He and his stunt team did a great time bringing that to life. There is no end of really great action directors right now, and they are drawing so many eyeballs, and they are drawing the audiences, and they should be doing the same in comics. That's what I'm trying to do month in, month out, along with building great characters, great consequences, and uh, and stuff that you guys enjoy. So, so there it is, the movement. We discussed the movement, the actual movement of the figure, the choreography, the, the big moments, the action. It's why we all tune in. It's why we all pick up comics and we uh, embrace them in the manner that we do. Every week in, week out on the podcast, I read your, the reviews that you leave for me and I share them with you. And you can leave them across all the different platforms. iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're on all of these. And today I am in a share with you a really nice note left to me by one Mr. Mark Bartle, B-A-R-T-L-E. It was left just a few weeks ago here in July. And he says, we appreciate you, Rob. We are definitely cheering you on. Thank you, Mark. I, I Literally, that is the sweetest sentiment. Thank you for making my childhood so awesome. I have welcomed my firstborn son into this world and, and all that you have shared on this podcast hit home. I think this is the one where I talked about my son graduating and how we deserve to rally around them. I got choked up on that episode. I didn't expect it. And I was so exhausted. I didn't want to go back in and cut and splice. Um, I was, I, I gotta be honest. I, uh, I, I do question why I didn't go back and do that. I think I was just so spent and ready to have 21 straight days, just kind of re-energizing that I let my emotions get the best of me, but I, I really appreciate the kindness that you guys have shared. Mr. Brandon Day. So that was from Mark Bartle. Thank you, Mark. Mr. Brandon Day shared. He says, I am without words to describe this episode. This is also the pop culture State of the Union episode. It ended so emotionally heartfelt, deeply, uh, deep, true love, and inspired me to triumph over any of the adversity we each face to one degree or another each and every day. We love you, Rob. We enjoy uh, your podcast. You have earned your well-deserved vacation. We cherish each and every moment you have with your family. God bless you and everything that you have touched through your pencil, ink, words, and ideas. Brandon Day, what a sweet sentiment. You guys, you have powered me. Um, this, this, this conversation that we have twice weekly, I just enjoy it so much, and I try and give you a mixture of enthusiasm, inside knowledge, because trust me, you guys have seen it. If you come and talk to me at San Diego Comic-Con, if you attended my panel, if you visited me in North Carolina, visited me in in, uh, in Texas, visited me at one of my source signings here in California, um, I, I asked you, why do you like the show? Why do you like the show? And you guys have told me, and it is this mix, I was talking to the guys at Heritage Auctions. And they told me how much they enjoy listening to the show. And I was completely floored. And when I said, what do you like? They like, we like the history lessons. Uh, the guy who is a vice president of Mattel, he runs an entire division at Mattel at San Diego Comic-Con. said, Rob, I've been buying your comic books since I was 12. I, I saved all my money. I bought Youngblood. I bought X-Force. 
I followed your career. I am such a fan. I love your podcast. I said, what would you like about it? He said, I love all the inside knowledge um, and the stories that I wouldn't have otherwise known. So I'm trying to listen to you guys and bring to you guys more uh, of everything that you like and just kind of, you know, align my focus with what you enjoy because there are so many different topics. I enjoy talking about them. But when you leave these heartfelt, amazing reviews for me, I am so thrilled and I will share them with uh, everyone at the end of every episode. So thank you to Mark Bartle. Thank you to Brandon Day. You guys are really sweet. You really touched me. Thank you for, for, for really being the wind beneath my wings. All of you, each and every one of you, I feel you. I thank you so much and, uh, and, and, and just appreciate all your support, spreading the word, sharing with your friends. Um, this, this podcast is really gaining a ton of steam it is it is a way for me to give back to you and i thank you so much you guys know that i am all over social media i am on twitter at robert Leifeld. i have i have a blue check um that just tells you that it's really me on instagram i am at rob Leifeld. I, I love reading all of your guys uh posts your dms your comments uh your mentions i try and interact with you guys as often as i possibly can it's fun i, I do love that there is this way that we can reach out and all touch each other all over the world and, and, and share our interest and our passions. And, and I just, I enjoy it so much. So thank you. Thank you for following me on Instagram at Rob Liefeld on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I'm all over Facebook. We have a kick-ass group called Rob Liefeld and extreme group. That's the exact name of the group on Facebook. Please, uh, either myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala will click you in. We are the two administrators of that page. The page is really blowing up. We share uh, like again, all manner of anything that I have touched through my career, whether it's been, you know, everything is on the table because I've worked on the Avengers and Captain America and I've illustrated the Fantastic Four. So the Marvel classics are there, the DC stuff, the stuff that I've created, the image comic stuff, the stuff beyond that GI Joe, we just share all of it. If you're really into checking out with, um, thousands of other, uh, really fun people, we, it's, it's a great hangout each and every day. This page Rob's observations with Rob Liefeld has a dedicated page on Facebook seek it out like it um, leave a comment I will find it I will like you back um, thank you just for all the support we are just trying to get the word out there and um, I, I, I clearly have a lot more stories to tell and I enjoy uh, the fact that you want to tune in and hear them so at the end of every show I make sure and and literally uh, you know try and encourage you the best I can that your mental and your spiritual and your physical and your emotional health is important. And the way I recommend dealing with it, the way is that just kick back on the couch, in the recliner, in the beanbag. Um, I, 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 you know, or, or, or my nice leather chair, I, I balance between all of them and I read comics and I read novels and, uh, I enjoy art, whether it is the filmed form, the drawn form, the illustrated form, the written form. And, uh, I eat fun food, you know, good pizzas, you know, uh, great burgers, great chicken sandwiches. I mean, good God, the world of chicken sandwiches. I should do an entire podcast on the evolution of fried chicken sandwiches. Maybe that'll be the greatest podcast ever when I come and give you the five greatest chicken sandwiches that I have um, encountered. And uh, you know what? That I, I, I sense, I sense an episode. I sense one coming up. I, I it's forming in my head right now. But Great stuff, gelato, ice cream, cookies, chips. Come on, man. You got you to gotta reward yourself. You got to give yourself something fun. Watch a fun show. I mean, look, I'm going to watch Paper Girls like tonight. I can't believe that, that, that it is my favorite Brian K. Vaughn 
uh, work and 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 I am I am I, I really I mean above above Saga and 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 even uh, and above why the last man and I just think that that the work that he has uh, done on that on, on that graphic novel it's the first time that I actually gave my to my to my wife I said look I, I need you I need you to read this because you're gonna dig this and and you know it was like four or five years ago when it was first coming out. Cliff Chang, I hope I said that right. I had the great pleasure of meeting him. He was so generous and co- so kind to me. But this is an example. Uh, he, 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 I had, I had tweeted out my support, and he, he caught me at a party and, and, and let me know how much it, it meant to him. And look, this is masterclass storytelling. At least I'm all I've experienced is the graphic novel. I've promoted the graphic novel. I think the graphic novel is fantastic. They've now made it into a show on Amazon. I'm gonna enjoy that. I'm gonna kick back. I'm gonna absorb it. That is me feeding my spiritual, emotional. And, and, and mental self and physically I'll be laying down. So that, that's how it's done. Guys, just take care of yourself. Take a day, take a day off, take some time out, grab some old comics, smell some old news, newsprint, uh, get a brand new, uh, uh, uh trade paperback hardcover. You know, I'm all about just, you got to get some time for you. You got to feed you. You got to relive the stuff that you love. Let it re-inspire you again. That is my affirmation to all you guys. I wish you all the best. I am rooting for you at all times and, and, uh, I just, I just, uh, you are, you are always, you know, in my thoughts and prayers, cause I'm one of you guys. And, and, and I just, the, I, the, this, this period in time is weird. It's weird. I've never thought that we would get to this place in time. There are so many crazy, you know, just things that are dividing us every day that we need to look to the ways that can unite us. And I believe art and great food is going to do the trick. You guys do not miss me. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be waiting for you. Swing back by the cul-de-sac and uh, and catch me here the next time around. And, and we are most certainly, absolutely going to talk again real soon.